We are in the book of Colossians. We're starting the book of Colossians this morning. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Colossians. If you don't have a Bible on your way out this morning, we have some at the doors as a, as a gift uh, to you. So Colossians chapter 1, verse 1, this morning. You know, one of the really important parts of our church is the greeting, the welcome. Uh, our church would not be what it is uh, without Donnie Stockman, who greets at this door. Amen? Right? So, uh, I'm sure many of you have felt loved uh, over the years as you have come in that door and felt the love of Christ in his, his greeting for you. Also, John Hollisay, who's at the front door, greets faithfully uh, every weekend. He's gone this month because he went back to Jordan, where he's from, to, to visit uh, family. It was a little different not having John here uh, this morning greeting. It makes a huge difference in our church in, in greeting one another. And there's so much power in a greeting, isn't there? When, when someone really takes the time to look into your eyes and, and love on you for a moment. And what we're going to study is we're going to study the Apostle Paul's greeting to the church of Col- Colossae. And in that greeting, there's lessons for us. There's things that God would want to teach us. So let's pray and ask that God would minister to us through his word. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study the book of Colossians, to study this powerful greeting from the Apostle Paul that's so, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Lord, I know for many of us, it's been a full week with ups and downs and trials and joys and victories. We're here this morning to meet with you, and Jesus, we pray that you would be honored, that you would be glorified. As we study the book of Colossians, that you truly would be first in our church and first in our lives. So we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we jump into this greeting, let's get a little bit of background to this letter. The theme of the book of Colossians is the supremacy of Christ, for Christ to be first, Jesus to be first in our lives, the fullness of Christ, that Christ is all and he is sufficient, more than sufficient in our lives. For the supremacy of Christ, it's one, the central message of the scriptures. When we study the Bible, we have to remember it all points to Jesus Christ. It's easy to study one section of scripture and actually walk away from that with a moralistic message instead of a Jesus message. What do I mean? So here's a set of rules, a set of ways to live, a set of morality, and we don't realize that that points us to Jesus. That Jesus is the fulfillment of that righteousness. That he's that fulfillment of the morality. And it's only through a relationship with him and his grace being vibrant in our lives that we can live it out. How many messages have you heard that are try harder, do better? Where there's the absence of Christ. There's the the absence of the importance of relying upon him. So the supremacy of Christ is throughout scripture. And for Christ to be first in our lives, it doesn't mean uh, that it doesn't impact two, three, four, five, six, the other priorities. For Jesus to be first, then means that he impacts our families. For Jesus to be first, it then means that he impacts our, our finances. For Jesus to be first, then that impacts our work life or, or going to college or high school. So Jesus is supreme in our lives. This letter was most likely written between 60 AD and 62 uh, AD when Paul was in his first imprisonment in Rome at the end of Acts chapter 28. And he 
writes this letter to the church of Colossae. So he's in prison as he's writing that le- this letter. Keep that in mind. Because as you read it, it doesn't seem like someone who is in prison. He's got a heart of joy and confidence in the Lord. The reason that he is writing uh, this letter is this is a group of believers that he hasn't spent time with. So he's heard of their faith, but he hasn't spent time with this particular church. But he knows there's false teaching that has come into the church of Colossae. There was Gnosticism, which is this belief that there's a higher knowledge, that This select group of people who are devoted spiritually, they have this deeper knowledge that everybody else is missing out of, but it was false teaching that denied that Christ had come in the flesh, that denied that Jesus was God. Please be careful if you ever meet a group of people that tell you, you know, well, the church is okay as a whole, but really it's our little small group that really loves the Lord. It's our little group that really presses into the things of God. And we've noticed that you really have a heart for Jesus. And so you should join our Navy SEALs group of Christianity, right? You're going to be special forces. Be careful. Look out because oftentimes it leads to false teaching. Another false teaching that was coming into the church was legalism apart from Jesus. To go back under the law. And to have a rules-based relationship uh, with the Lord. And our flesh is bent that way. It's difficult, actually, to live by grace. And it's easier for someone to give us a set of rules. And when we do the rules well, we feel good about ourselves. But when we fail from the rules, then we live in condemnation. So Paul's answer to this was the supremacy of Christ. And the importance of, of growing in a relationship with Jesus. So a simple outline of this book is the first two chapters is the supremacy of Christ doctrinally. It focuses on the doctrine of the supremacy of Christ. And then chapter three is the supremacy of Christ spiritually. What does it mean to have this new life in Christ? And then chapter four, we see the supremacy of Christ practically, how it lives out in relationships. If Christ is first in my life, then how does this affect my relationships with those who are around me? So let's jump into this greeting. It says, Paul, apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Some of you may not be familiar with the apostle Paul. He's new to you as you study the scriptures. He's got an amazing story where he was opposed to the things of Christ. He persecuted the church. He was on the road to Damascus in Syria to arrest Christians, and God got his attention God called him by name, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And in that moment, Saul is changed, he's transformed, and eventually his name is changed by God to Paul. In that conversion, Saul asked this question, Lord, what do you want me to do? And I believe he meant it, and he didn't put any conditions on that. Many times when we ask that question of the Lord, we say, Lord, what do you want me to do? And in essence, we're saying, I'm open to three options. You know, these are three things that I'm willing to do. But Paul surrendered himself to the Lord. He went from being a persecutor of the church to the pastor of the church. Somehow, if we were able to get a list of 10 people in Colorado Springs that are most opposed to the things of Christ, they're most vocal about their hatred for Jesus and wanting Christ to not be a part of society in any way, shape, or form, Paul would have been number one on that list. And so it encourages us that no one is beyond 
the salvation of God. I'm sure the church was praying for Saul and praying that God would save him and transform his life. So Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. Apostle, the word means to be sent out, to be an ambassador. And he has been sent out by Jesus Christ. We see Paul starting lots of churches throughout the book of Acts. And this was his calling by the Lord. He knew that he was in the will of God. And being in the will of God is a good place to be. Where we can rest and say, man, I know I'm where God wants me to be. You know, I'm an accountant by the, the will of God. I'm a mom or dad by the will of God. I'm single by, by the will of God. I'm a teacher by uh, the will of God. I'm a carpenter by, by the will of God. This, this is where God has planted me, and this is where I'm endeavoring to serve the Lord. And Paul knew that in his life. Also, he's traveling with Timothy, who he sees as a brother. Timothy's a younger man. He's his protege. He's mentoring and discipling Timothy, but he sees him as a brother, and they're doing life and ministry together. And this is our first lesson, if you're taking notes this morning, is never do life and ministry alone. Paul, in his letters, is always traveling with someone. We see that in his introductions. At many of the conclusions of his letters, it's filled with a bunch of people's names. That sometimes to us, we're struggling to make connection with, but it shows how Paul was in relationship with people. He was doing life and ministry with people. It seems like life and the enemy has a way of isolating us over time, isn't it? To where we find ourselves really not spending time with people. I believe that the enemy wants you alone. The enemy wants me alone. Because that's where his lies are going to penetrate our lives to the greatest degree. That's where discouragement is going to have its way. God designed us and he created us for relationship with God and relationship with one another. And when we're in relationship with one another, when we're doing daily life together with other believers, it produces growth in our life and it's protection for us. What are some of the things that keep us from relationship with believers? A lot of it is busyness, isn't it? We go, man, I'm so busy, I really don't have the time to get together with these believers. This happened to me this week uh, on Wednesday. We have about four or five times a year where pastors in our city get together for lunch. I always enjoy going, but there was one this prior Wednesday at Vanguard Church And I'm thinking, I just don't have the time. I don't have the time to go over there. It's so far. (laughs) And yet, the Spirit of God saying, Eric, make the time. And I made the time, and I enjoyed it. I had a great time connecting with other pastors in our city that I know and love and, and care for. And I come back to the office here, and they were saying, hey, how was your time? I was like, I'm so glad that I made the time. I'm so glad that I made made the time. So make the time. Make the effort. Spend time with believers. Busyness keeps us from relationship. But also, hurt keeps us from relationship, doesn't it? Over time, you're going to get hurt by other believers. And if you're not careful, the enemy's going to come in and say, hey, it's not worth it. You invested. You cared. You loved. You got hurt. So you're better off alone. You're better off Jesus in me. And say, no. I need to forgive, and I need to continue to press in to relationship with believers. I believe this, 
that over the course of your life, if you're committed to relationship with believers, you're going to experience far more benefit than deficit. Yeah, there's going to be hurt. Yeah, there's going to be individuals that take advantage of you, but there'll be way more individuals that love on you and care for you, and you're able to be used by God in their life. So Paul's in relationship. Verse 2 to the saints and the faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. So this is who he's writing to, the church of Colossae. Where is Colossae located? It's about 80 to 100 miles east of Ephesus in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. So that is this church that he is writing to. And he says, to the saints. All those who are in Christ are saints. The word saints means holy, set apart, consecrated, That's what took place in our lives the moment that we received Christ as our Savior. So a biblical definition of sainthood is not perfection. It's not, well, someone lived this amazing life, so after they die, we give them the title of being a saint. No, you're a saint if you're in Christ. You're holy, you're set apart, you're consecrated for Christ. This church is also faithful. Paul is writing to a faithful church. Paul loves to encourage and build up the churches and share what he sees as strengths inside of the church. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. The author of the grace and the peace is our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is favor. Grace is God's kindness. It's his goodness expressed to us in gifts, expressed to us in the gift of his son. So grace is God giving to us what we don't deserve. Mercy is God withholding the punishment that we do deserve. So God is both merciful and he is gracious in Christ Jesus. Now Paul is writing to believers that have received grace for salvation, but Paul is saying, may there be a fresh outpouring of grace in your life. Grace to you and peace. Grace was the Greek greeting, charis, and then peace, shalom, is the Hebrew greeting. Still, today in Hebrew, in, in Israel, they greet each other with shalom, with peace. But to Paul, this is more than just a casual hello or how are you. This is, this is what I desire to see God do in your life is grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You will never see in Paul's introduction the order of this flipped. It's never peace to you and grace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace always comes first. And Paul usually includes this in his introductions, in his greetings. Until we encounter and live in the grace of God on a continual basis, we will not experience the peace of God. So this is our second lesson this morning, is to live in God's grace and his peace. Every day. We have a lot of material that causes us to need God's grace. We have our sin, we have our shortcomings, we have our weakness, we have our lack of wisdom, and God wants to pour out grace into all of this. I was aware of this this summer in my lawn mowing. You're saying, really, in your lawn mowing? I've had a terrible summer of lawn mowing. Let me share it with you. It began the first week of July. We were getting ready to go on vacation. It was starting to get dark. 
And I decided I'm going to go ahead and go mow the lawn. I want to get this done right now. And Amber says, are you, are you sure? Is there enough light for you to be mowing the lawn? I'm like, I got this, babe. It's great, you know? Going out and mowing the lawn. And all of a sudden, I pick up a rock in the lawnmower. Towards the window, broken window, right? It's like, ah, oh, should have listened. Should have listened, right? So call to get it fixed. And they can't get it fixed before vacation, get it fixed after vacation. It's a little hard for me to swallow. But it's like, okay, it's just a broken window. It's not the end of the world. So here I am, Monday this week, mowing my lawn, doing my thing. And I pick up another rock. And this time it goes into the screen door on the front door. But the window doesn't break. I'm like, phew, I don't know that I can handle two of these in like a month. And then Eileen, the next morning, was in the front yard. And she's like, Dad, you got to come look at this. And sure enough, the glass had shattered. There was enough of a break in it where the tempered glass had shattered. So the glass company is coming back out on Tuesday. But I got to tell you, I went with a different glass company. I did not have the courage to call the same glass company twice. <laughs> I'm like, there's a lot of guys that do this in town. I, I'm, just, I'm just moving on. The, you guys did great the first time, but there's just too much humility in this, right? And I know what you're thinking. You're saying, Eric, what's wrong with you? Take the time to make sure the rocks are outside of the grass. Check your blade on your mower. Make sure that your, your mower is not too low uh, to, to the ground. It, it, there's a lot of good reasons why to not do this. I have a pretty long lawn mowing career, I got started really early in, in lawn mowing, and I've never broken windows. And I like to make fun of people who do, right? You know? <laughs> and here's a practical way where I need some grace. It wasn't like I was trying to be bad. I'm going out trying to do my responsibility, but by the time I was done with it, I've, I've broken two windows. And isn't that life a lot of times? Like, you're, you're out at your job, and you're trying to do your best, you know? You're in relationships and you're trying to do your best inside of your, your family, you know, inside of singleness and you're trying to honor God. You're out there pushing the lawnmower and all of a sudden something goes wrong. All of a sudden you fail and before you know it, you've shattered a couple windows relationally and we're in a place where, oh, I need God's grace. And I think this is one of the more difficult things to do in the Christian life is to really live in and depend upon God's grace because we're uncomfortable with our sin. Not that we ever get comfortable as being a sinner, but the humility of, man, I'm a sinner. And then we're uncomfortable with the fact of I'm weak and I need grace. I mean, who really wants grace? It just sounds wimpy, right? We want to earn it. We want to deserve it. We want to do it on our own strength. But God says we need his grace on an ongoing basis. We're invited to come to his throne room, come into his presence, and ask for grace in the moment of need. And Jesus is that faithful and merciful high priest. Have you learned to live in grace? Have you learned to depend upon grace? Because when you do, you will experience the peace of God because you're not carrying the burden anymore. It's not dependent upon you. It's dependent upon the Lord. And you go, ah, I'm trusting in his grace. And it results in God's peace. In verse three, we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Paul is 
faithful to give thanks for these believers and to always pray for them. And we see in verse 4, he says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, of your love for all the saints. There's no indication that Paul had spent time at the church of Colossae. Acts tells us he spent a lot of time in Ephesus, but it doesn't record that he went to Colossae. And he says, since I heard of your faith, I haven't ceased to pray for you, to give thanks for you. This is the third lesson this morning, is to see the priority and the possibility of prayer. Paul had prayer as a priority in his life. In all of his letters to all the churches, he emphasizes how he was praying for the churches. And he's in relationship with a lot of churches, so he was taking time to bathe these churches in prayer. In Acts 6, it tells us that the apostles gave themselves continually to prayer and the word. Paul saw prayer as the greatest thing that he could do for the church. This was the greatest gift that he could do for the church was to pray for them. He believed in the power of prayer. A lot of times we see prayer as the last option or the last resort. So I've done everything I know to do. I've called all my friends. I've rallied all my resources, my troops. I better pray about it. And Paul saw prayer as the greatest priority. I would encourage you, I know you're praying for those that you love. You're praying for the body of Christ. But continue in that because great work is done in prayer. There's great possibility in prayer. God is sovereign and he does what he pleases, but he chooses to respond to the prayers of his people. There's times where God didn't intervene in the nation of Israel until they prayed until they asked for help. What may God want to do in your relationships as you pray? What may he want to do in our families, in our homes, in our marriages, with with our kids? In singleness, as we cry out to the Lord in prayer and say, Lord, would you take this? Would you have this? So prayer was a huge priority to the Apostle Paul, but please don't lose verse two when you go to verse three. Keep a grace-filled relationship with the Lord. It's not like God's going, wow, you prayed 32 minutes, so now I'm going to answer your prayer. You finally got serious about prayer. Next time, let's make it 64, 64 minutes of prayer, and then I'll know you're really serious. This is a grace-filled relationship with God, where, where God's not impressed because we prayed longer. It's a relationship where we get to come and rely upon him in prayer. What does Paul hear about the church of Colossae? Their faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints. Faith is only as good as the object that it's placed in. And because their faith is in Christ, because they believe in Christ, they've been saved, they have the hope of eternal life, and Paul commends them first and foremost for their faith. That's the most important thing. And then out of their faith came this love for all of the saints. The church of Colossae was a loving church for all those who believed in Christ. The love for all the saints is a beautiful thing, not just love for some of the saints, not for those that are lovable or those that are in a stable place economically or those that are similar to me. In the church of Colossae, you would have Jews and Gentiles. You'd have Greeks and Scythians and male and female. You'd have this diversity of people that had gotten saved They weren't like each other according to their background, but they loved one another. They loved all of the saints in Christ Jesus. So we have faith, we have love, and we have hope in verse 5. 
because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. He says, guys, you have hope. You have this confident expectation of coming good that's laid up for you in heaven. Your hope is in heaven. Your comfort is in heaven because you heard the word of truth, you heard the gospel, and you responded to it in faith. This is what John 3.16 teaches us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I've been comforted by a greater way of eternity as I've been walking through these health challenges with my dad. I shared my dad's health challenges a couple weeks ago where he has Parkinson's and it's been affecting his memory and it's still affecting his memory. And so he's still in that place and we hope that he gets better uh, with his memory. But what the Lord has really comforted my heart with is that my dad and I have all of eternity to look forward to together to enjoy the most meaningful conversation. So I'm going to take as many conversations as I can get in this life, but this is not all that there is. And, and it just hit me. I'm like, wow, all of eternity, we get to hang out together with the Lord and have these in-depth conversations and grow in friendship even to a greater way. Can you imagine what our relationships are going to be like with each other without sin? And we're going to get to hang out with David We're going to get to hang out with Ruth. We're going to get to hang out with all these that we see in Scripture as we fellowship with the Lord. And that understanding of heaven in a personal way comforted me, but it also made me want to see as many people come to know Christ as possible. Like for others to be able to have this hope of eternal life. Whatever you're going through as a believer, allow your hope to be heaven. Allow your hope to to be heaven. Jesus said, don't let your heart be troubled because I go to prepare a place for you. He didn't say, don't let your heart be troubled because it's an election year, right? That's not a great hope. You guys with me? You okay there, right? He didn't say, don't let your heart be troubled because of the stock market. That's an up and down journey. Don't let your heart be troubled because you you fill in the blank. He said, Don't let your heart be troubled because I have prepared a place for you. However, I do think there's a misnomer here amongst some of us as believers that we all wrestle with. That we go, man, heaven is so good that I don't want to live now. And that's a wrong application. It's not that this life is bad, it's that heaven is better. And a clear vision of heaven says, man, I'm so looking forward to heaven but it causes me to have purpose in my day-to-day life. That there's purpose for, it, for the here and now. That I want to know Christ, that I want to make him known, that I want this life to impact eternal life. But if somehow our understanding of heaven causes us to hate this life or despair of this life or even as believers contemplate or commit suicide, that's a wrong application of this. Eternal life starts now. We don't wait for heaven to start enjoying the life of Christ. We get to enjoy the life of Christ now. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying it's easy, but I am saying it's worthwhile. So Christ is the one who numbers our days. We don't get to number our days. And so as long as he gives us life, we say, okay, I'm looking forward to heaven, but because of heaven, I'm fully engaged in what he has for me today. Does that make sense? 
So the hope of heaven. In verse six, we have our last lesson, which has come to you and it has also in all the world, as it has also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit, as it also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. The last lesson we see, the fourth lesson, is the gospel brings forth fruit. The gospel brings forth fruit. Paul says the gospel came to you in Colossae, and you embraced the grace of God in truth, and you got saved. And the gospel's going out through all the world, not that all the world is reached yet, but the gospel's having impact throughout all of the world. And the gospel truly does bring forth fruit. So what is the gospel? In 1 Corinthians 15, it tells us and declares to us, Paul says, this is the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and the third day rose again according to the scriptures. And as we believe the gospel and stand in the gospel, we're saved. If you know Christ as your savior, there was a moment in time where you trusted the gospel, and it may have been a process, but you came to understand your need for Jesus for the forgiveness of sin, and the gospel impacted your life. Paul is so committed to the gospel. In Romans chapter one, he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation. We should not be ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to bring salvation into people's lives. It's tragic in the life of a believer or in the life of a church family when we lose our message. We don't have a political message as a church. We have the gospel. The message is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, when people get saved, does that impact a nation politically? Absolutely. But if the church goes around preaching politics, we have missed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our message is not one of social reform, first and foremost. Paul is living during the time of the Roman government. He could have said, hey, let's overthrow the Roman government. Jesus is a revolutionary, and let's do this. But that's not what Paul preached. He preached the gospel. Now, does social reform happen as people get saved? Absolutely. It impacts us and impacts the way that we relate with one another and caring for people, but our message is the gospel. Jesus' ministry, I love this, in Mark chapter, or excuse me, in Matthew chapter four, it says, and Jesus went out about all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. So he went out preaching the gospel and demonstrating the gospel. Preaching the gospel, demonstrating the gospel. And then he tells us, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. May God encourage us in our confidence of the gospel. The gospel will bring forth fruit in people's lives. We get to demonstrate it to them in caring for needs and getting to know them, and we get to proclaim the gospel. I got a hunch people are a lot more interested in the gospel than we think. They're a lot more hungry for the gospel than we think. And God wants to use each of us to take the gospel out. As he puts people into our lives is to share with them, Jesus loves you. He died for your sins. He rose again. To ask those questions, what do you believe about Christ? But there's power in the gospel to go forth. In verse 7 and 8, 
As you have learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. So Epaphras is ministering there in Colossae and sharing back with Paul on what is taking place. And Epaphras is built up as a fellow servant and as a faithful minister. So Paul is encouraging Epaphras in his role in the church of Colossae. So what have we seen this morning? How do we make application? First is, never do life in ministry alone. If you find yourself in a place of isolation because of busyness or bitterness, fight to get out. Fight to get out. Make a list. Hey, these are believers in my life that I would like to invest relationship with. These are great potentials for relationship. I'm going to start making time for them. Hey, I've been getting this invite from this believer to spend time with for a long, long time, and I always say no. You go, well, well, Eric, I don't have a list. (laughs) Come to men's study. Come to women's study. Join a small group. You're welcome to come. You're invited to come. And guess what? You're going to get to know people, and you're going to start being in relationship with one another. And then live in the grace and the peace of God. Have confidence in the grace of God. Have you broken some windows this week? Me too, right? Go to the Lord for some grace. Say, Lord, here's, here's where it hasn't gone so well this week. And I'm confessing to you. And man, this trial's in my life. And I need your grace. Rely upon his grace. Believe in his grace. And then experience his peace. The priority and the possibility of prayer. What, what believers are on your heart? Again, keep praying for them. Keep praying for them. Read ahead in the Colossians and see what Paul prayed for for the church of Colossae. But it's the greatest thing that we can do for fellow believers is to pray for them. Make it practical. Take a walk and just start to talk with the Lord and say, Lord, this is what's on my heart and I lift these believers up to you. Whatever works for you, maybe it's your commute or your drive, go ahead and turn off the radio and say, I'm gonna take this time to talk with the Lord. Maybe you find yourself waking up in the early hours of the morning and drop to your knees and just begin to pray. And then the gospel brings forth fruit. Hopefully as we're together this morning, we're being encouraged, we're being equipped so that we can be sent out. There's gonna be something missing in our Christian life if we don't have an outreach perspective, if we don't have a missional perspective to say, God, you've put me in the lives of unbelievers, and how do I demonstrate the gospel and share the gospel with them, believing that it's the power of God to salvation? And you guys are doing it. Over and over in the life of our church, you're reaching out to unbelievers, you're inviting unbelievers to come, and unbelievers are coming to know Christ as their Savior. But I'm always challenged. I'm always convicted of having a heart for those that don't know Christ as their Savior. Who was it in your life before you knew Jesus that reached out to you with the love of Jesus? Is there a name that comes to mind? And go, okay, now it's my turn to be that person in someone else's life. So wonderful lessons in this greeting for us. Let's stand together and let's pray.
Father, we ask that you would take your word and that you would bring application through the power of your spirit. That you'd help us to fight out of isolation. That we could really be in relationship with each other. Would you be gracious to us relationally? We come before you and you see the broken windows in our lives, the broken windows in our souls, where we've sinned, where we've fallen short, where we're just in an intense trial. Jesus, I come to you afresh this morning asking for grace. We come to you asking for grace and we receive that grace. We pray it would result in a tremendous amount of peace. Just let go of the trial, let go of the failure and receive the peace of God. Lord, would you move us in this area of prayer? May we begin through faith to see the spiritual realm, the spiritual battle and the possibilities as we come to you and labor in prayer and intercede. May we be obedient even in those times when you call us to fast and and pray. And would you renew in our hearts a confidence in the gospel. The gospel brings forth fruit. This week, would you give us opportunities to demonstrate the gospel and to share the gospel? So we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.